Am I on? Brilliant. I don't like these things. I always feel like Madonna going on stage at a live concert. It's horrible, isn't it? <laughs> Thank you. Right. Well, good morning, everybody. I am a sucker for a box set. I'm a sucker for a real good TV series that'll just drag you in. I can spend hour after hour just getting from one episode to the next, one episode to the next. Uh, me and Sam, when the kids were really young, we went through entire box sets of 24, which is 24 hours in about two or three days. We'd constantly get to bed. Look at the time. It's two o'clock. We've got we to go to bed. The kids are going to be up in about an hour. Just a sucker for it. Or maybe, maybe you all like the TV programs where we get into it and we just get into a crescendo, it's a really good bit, and then you hear those dreaded drum beats. Doom, 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 doom. And EastEnders finishes, and you've got to wait for the next episode. And that's what we see here in the passages we've been given. Luke finishes his book, his first book to Theophilus, at a crescendo. Jesus has gone. He ascends into heaven, promising the Holy Spirit, and then the book stops. And we're just there on the edge of the seats. His readers must be there on the edge of the seats, anticipating what is to come. And of course there is the second book from Luke that he wrote. It is to come. And what Luke says in these first few verses here kind of sum that up quite well. In my former book, Theophilus, and we went through Theophilus as we started uh, Luke many, many months ago now. Theophilus simple translation, God's friend, Mr. Godfriend, something like that. In Luke's uh, letter or book or gospel, he calls him most excellent Theophilus, so you could say he's a high-ranking Roman official perhaps, but we don't know that for sure. So he's writing here to Mr. Godfriend. In my first book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So at the end of Luke's book, he's finishing with what Jesus began to do. There is a next chapter to what Jesus is going to continue to do. And we see the link between both things in these first 11 uh, verses of Acts. He began to do his work. So the Acts of the Apostles is probably an okay title for the book of Acts, but it should be something perhaps like the Acts of the Apostles through the work of the Holy Spirit, sent by Jesus and the Father. That would be a great title. Probably wouldn't fit on the front of the book. But what a great title and an apt title, perhaps, that is. So Luke introduces the book of Acts with this. He's going to tell how Jesus continues to do his work through the Holy Spirit. But there's that little bit in between that we're going to read and learn about now, the ascension of Jesus. Now, the Ascension, Ascension Day obviously happened on Thursday, and I'm sure all of you had a great big party to remember it. But it's a massive, massive event in what Jesus did in his ministry. It's absolutely vital. The Ascension appears in every early creed of the church. It's ranked just alongside his incarnation, the birth of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the Ascension of Christ is in every single creed we see and we hear about. We even got it in the, in a, the letter from Paul himself to Timothy. The, the, the earliest creed we can see from Paul 
He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. The ascension is right there. It's key to everything. The ascension is a vital link in God's salvation and redemption plan for earth. And everybody knows, Paul will know better than most, if a link is broken or missing on a chain of his bicycle, the bicycle won't move. In fact, the chain won't be a chain anymore. It'll just be a long line. It needs to be there. The ascension needs to be there to get a whole idea is how the redemption plan of God worked. Absolutely vital. Absolutely vital. So, as we look at the passage we're given now, we're just going to ask and think through some simple questions. Some of them have some simple answers, to be honest, but it's good that we answer these questions as we go through, and they're going to be ones like, how did Jesus ascend? Where did he ascend to? Why did he ascend? What does it mean for us that he has ascended? What should we be doing about it? And here's one that might get you sitting on the edge of the seats. When and where will he return? And we're going to be doing this by going through our passage. Some of them, like I said, easy. But as we get towards the end, we'll definitely need to get our spiritual shovels out because we're going to dig a lot deeper into God's word as we, as we go into it. So as we said, this 40 days has happened since Jesus has been resurrected. We're here at the ascension. How did Jesus ascend? Well, that's here quite simply and quite easily. We see that in verses 9 and 10 of our passage in Acts. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. A cloud hid them from their sight. And while they were looking up into the sky. So ascended, as the word means, ascended. He was raised upwards. He went up. The Greek word definitely means he was lifted up. He wasn't like I've seen, you've seen some of the films about Jesus. He's there blessing them at the end and just disappears in this glowing light where he is. No, he went up. He ascended. And secondly, how did he ascend? He ascended as 100% human. He ascended as 100% human, fully God and fully man. He is ascended. He didn't then get to heaven, say, my work's done with humanity, took off his human suit, unzipped it, and was done with that. No, he is in heaven eternally as a man. Fully God and fully man. And I'm going to take off my suit now. It's not a skin suit, but it's really hot. So I'm going to leave that one down there. He didn't do that, though. He is still fully human. Question two, where did he ascend to? Well, we know that another easy question to answer. We see in, in Acts, later on in Acts, in Acts 7, when Stephen's being stoned, he looks up in pure suffering. He looks up and sees Jesus Christ next to the Father, at the right hand of the Father, standing in heaven itself. He ascended to heaven. He ascended to God's presence too. You see where he ascends here in verse... Verse 9, a cloud hid him from his sight. A cloud is always representative of God's very presence. Jesus ascends to the presence. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke 9. Jesus is there on the mountain and God's presence as a cloud comes over and he declares, this is my son. Listen to him. Or also when Moses asked to see God's glory 
In Exodus, way back in Exodus, the cloud envelopes the mountain and God passes by. The cloud signifies where God is. So Jesus ascended, went up in glory to heaven itself, to be in the presence of the Father. So what does this mean? A man, like I said, is forever to be in God's presence, fulfilling God's original creation plan of being close to humans, being in relationship with humans. And not only that, not only is Jesus there, he is reigning. He is there on the throne. If you think of Revelation at the end, you see the Lamb standing at the center of the throne. Jesus is there, a man is there, reigning in the seat of power. We've got an election coming soon. And I'm not even going to ask who you're going to vote for, but we all have our favorites to vote for and those who we want to be a representative of our, of how we want the world to be, how we want the world to live. We have the perfect candidate that has ascended into heaven itself, the perfect human, and he is reigning and will reign. What a representative to have, the perfect man. Question three, why did Jesus ascend? Well, Trish touched on this in verses four, five, and eight in our passage. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. And again, in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Jesus has ascended so the Holy Spirit can come. And there's a few passages here that I want to touch on. Trisha touched on one, John 16. John 16, 7. Very truly, it's good for you that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. In Ephesians, Paul writes, and he opens up Psalm 68, verse 18 here. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives in his wake and gave gifts to men. He went to heaven to, to get gifts and give them to men. Slightly different to Psalm 68, 18. In Psalm 68, 18, we read, When you ascended on high, you took many captives... You receive gifts from men. But that word, that word that's used for received, is, can, be, can be translated received, but is translated too as like a fetching and carrying, a fetching and bringing. And that's what Paul shows us here. Jesus has gone into heaven to fetch and bring and send and give the Holy Spirit to us. Again, in John, we hear this. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. So why did Jesus ascend? He ascended to give that gift of the Holy Spirit to all believers. Someone said, the Holy Spirit is like an engagement ring. Jesus sends his Holy Spirit as an engagement ring, as a pledge of marriage to the church, as a pledge of marriage to his wife. 
It's something they're showing and a deposit of the guarantee to come, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. It's like an engagement ring. We're going to be married. Here is the proof of that. I think we can put it this way. It's good for us that Jesus Christ is ascended, has ascended, because Jesus' physical ascension and remoteness brings forth his spiritual, God's spiritual nearness. He's free from earthly limitations of being in one place now and can now through the Holy Spirit be accessible to all, to all of his believers all around the world at the same time. He can comfort them, teach them, empower them by applying his living word to their lives. And the Holy Spirit will continue to sanctify us and change us into perfect humanity too so we can dwell in the very presence of God where Jesus has been. He led us. He led captives in his train. He is leading us to the presence of God. So when and where will he return? The apostles ask the same question. The apostles ask the same question. And they say, if I can find the verse... Verse 6, sorry. Then they gathered round him and asked him, Lord, at this time are you going to restore the kingdom of heaven? Is it going to happen now? He said they're going to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to come. I think they're linking Jeremiah passage perhaps where God promises on that day when Israel will, ne will never ever be taken over again that his spirit will be written in our minds and on our hearts. They're linking that. It's going to happen now. It's going to happen now. But Jesus says... Just with this answer, he doesn't tell them when. But he does say, it's not going to happen now. Because Jesus says, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for my gift the Father promised. And then in 7, he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates of the Father, but you'll receive power from the Holy Spirit when it comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, that's not going to happen immediately. It's going to take a while for God's gospel to go out to the entire world. It wasn't going to happen straight away. But we do see this in Acts, working itself out. In Acts, the beginning of Acts, chapters, you could say, roughly 1 to 7, there is the gospel being proclaimed to Jerusalem. In chapters 8 to 12, the gospel is going out into Samaria and Judea. And from chapters 13 onwards, the gospel is going out into the world kind of see Jesus' words being worked out. His promises being worked out. But we do know, we don't know when, but we do know where Jesus will return. Verses 10 and 11. They were looking intently up into the sky when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them and asked the silliest question I can think of that angels will ask. Why are you looking into the sky? Jesus has just ascended there. Our Lord's just ascended there. Of course we're looking up. Why are you looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken away from you in heaven, will come back in the same way he has gone into heaven. In the same way. So what does that mean? Jesus ascended on the cloud. When Jesus is being under trial, talking to the chief priests, what does Jesus say? They say, are you the Christ? He says, you have said so. 
Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. He will come back in the same way he left and to the same place. Where were they? If you read one more verse from our passage in Acts 12, you will see they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. They come from, back from the Mount of Olives. Well, we'll, where will the Lord return when the Lord comes again? We will see this prophesied in Zechariah. In Zechariah, verse 14, we read this, and it's titled, the chapter is titled, The Lord Comes and Reigns. Zechariah 14, 4, we read, On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two. When he comes, if Zechariah's prophecy is to be fulfilled, he will come back to the same place where he left. So question five. What does this mean to us and for us? What has he done? What does he continue to do? Well, the answer to this one does mean we need to get our spiritual shovels out and dig pretty deep into God's word. Because, as Jesus says and others say, if ever you want the best, fullest, most enriched picture of Jesus and what he has done, you go to the Old Testament. You go to the Old Scriptures. Jesus himself says it. Others say it as well in the Scriptures themselves. In John 1, when Philip goes to see Nathaniel, Philip says to Nathaniel, we found the one that Moses wrote about. In John 5, Jesus says, you diligently study the scriptures. But these are the scriptures that speak about me. They're diligently searching the Old Testament, obviously, then. In Luke 24, just a few verses before our passage today, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. So, so to get a fuller picture of Jesus Christ, we need to go back to the Old Testament. So if we can all turn to, you, you can if you want to, Leviticus. This is Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. If you ever want to know exactly what's going on at the Ascension, the Day of Atonement is where to turn to. You'll find it in Leviticus 16, which is page 118 in the Church Bibles. And as we... As we do that now, we need to get a picture of what it was like then in Leviticus 16. Moses has led the people into the wilderness. They're traveling around the wilderness. And God has designed the tabernacle, given the instructions to Moses how to build the tabernacle. And this is God's dwelling place among his chosen people, a portable dwelling place of God amongst his chosen people. So there you see the tabernacle, the tent-shaped thing there. Is it the right one? Great, okay. And what he did, he designed absolutely everything for them. So he told them how, for this special day of atonement, the priest would be dressed. Exactly how he should be dressed. If you see here, 12 stones on the priest's breastplate. Each stone had the name written of one of the sons of Jacob, of Israel. 
So the priest putting this breastplate on is representing all of God's chosen people. The curtains, you'll see in Exodus 36, God says, they made the curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim woven into the curtain. Angelic beings woven into the curtain. So you're inside the tabernacle, the tent of meeting now, but it's split in two. There's the tabernacle, there's the curtain with the angelic beings on. The other side of there is the throne room of God, the Ark of the Covenant. The throne of God. This is where God's throne room is. So you see, the, this small place here is called the most holy place, the holy of holies. There's the tent of meeting where, God, where God's presence is, where the priests would go. But on this one day, this one day, the day of atonement, a man would be able to go through the curtain, go into heaven itself to the very presence the high priest to the throne of God. Thank you, Alan. So we've got a picture of what's going on here. So that was going to be that is a picture of heaven, a copy of heaven. We read it in uh, Hebrews, in Hebrews eight five, that I can't find now. So I'm going to quickly find it. Hebrews 8, 5. Excuse my Bible falling everywhere. Apologies for this. Hebrews 8, 5. The writer of Hebrews says, They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses warned them that they must build it exactly how God dictated it. It's to be a copy of heaven itself. So on the Day of Atonement, this is what happens. If we get Leviticus 16 in front of us then. So the Day of Atonement was a once in a calendar year thing for the Hebrews to, to do. It was a once a year ordinance from God. And whenever a once a year ordinance from God happens it indicates, it points to a one-off event in human history. It will be fulfilled by Jesus once. So it's to be a one-off event. And as I said, God would dwell or tabernacle amongst his people, but once a year that high priest, that human being, would enter heaven itself or God's throne room. Just like the ascension of we've seen, Jesus Christ, the human, would enter heaven itself. And what would be the procedure? So in verses 4, the early part of verse 4 in Leviticus 16, the high priest puts on the sacred priestly garments worn once a year with those names on, representing all of the sons of of Israel, the God's chosen people he was representing as he went in to heaven. But Jesus has, has got all our names written on us because he's filled and incarnated with humanity. Jesus represents all humanity being clothed in human flesh as he enters heaven himself. 
But before this, the priest in 4b, he must purify himself, bathe totally. Jesus didn't have to do that. That doesn't point to Jesus. Jesus is the pure, sinless, clean human who can go into heaven himself. In verses 6 to 17, the high priest, what he does, he takes the blood of sacrifices of a bull for himself and his family, and from one of two goats, he sacrifices for the entire congregation of Israel. And with that blood, he takes that blood behind the curtain, verse 15. He takes that blood into heaven with him. He takes a sacrifice to the throne room of God. And with that blood, he sprinkles it on the throne of God, on the atonement cover. Strange. What he does, he's atoning the most holy place because a sin sinful humanity has gone into heaven. It needs to be atoned for. It needs to be cleaned because of this dirty human flesh going in there. In verse 16, you see, whatever their sins are, no matter what sins the Israelites have done, this blood will atone for it. Be completely cleansing. It will completely satisfy God. So he atones heaven and he atones for the people of God in verse 17. Himself, his family, and all the people he has atoned for as well. Jesus, as he entered heaven with his sacrificial blood, his own sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, cleanses heaven because he's a clean human there and can clean us all of all sin, of every single sin, the Son of God descended down onto earth and saw every single filthy, dirty sin that can possibly be done. But his blood is so superior, it can cleanse all of that. It will satisfy God as he enters heaven. So we can put it this way. Jesus, our great high priest, has ascended, gone into heaven, taken with him our humanity, presents his own blood as the perfect sacrifice, sufficient for all time, for all sins, sufficient for God to be pleased to dwell among his people by his Holy Spirit. We see that in Hebrews, in Hebrews 7. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he is always interceding for them. So the people, as this high priest in Leviticus went into the throne room of God, everybody else stopped. They couldn't do anything. They weren't allowed to do anything. Humble Humble yourselves, God said. Do not do anything. Can you think of the anticipation? The whole congregation, God's chosen people are waiting and waiting and waiting for the high priest to step back out from that curtain to step back out from heaven. Well, we're not at that place yet. We're still waiting for our high priest to step back out. But this is what will happen. We see this in verses 21, 22, I think, in Leviticus. No need to turn to it. The people cannot approach God, where God dwells until the priest has stepped out. And he symbolically shows what has happened in as he's gone into heaven with the second goat. Remember, 
he took one of two goats, sacrificed it for the people, and took it into heaven. The second goat is outside. What does the priest do? He steps back out of heaven and symbolizes what has gone on. He puts his hand on the goat's head and confesses every single sin of the people of God. He's God's chosen people. And then that goat is led away, far away from God's presence, far away from God's camp, far away from God's dwelling place, showing that the blood of Jesus Christ atones us and cleans us, and our sins are taken far away from God's presence by Jesus' work. So on that day when Jesus comes again, he will step out of heaven and declare our sins to be finally taken fully away from God and God will come and dwell back with humans again. And this is supposed to be a yearly event for the Hebrews. They do nothing. It's supposed to be a Sabbath rest. Humble yourselves, he says. Do not do anything representing that we can do nothing ourselves to help with this reconciliation of God. The high priest has done it all. We are to solely rely on the work of our high priest. So in conclusion, we've answered. How did Jesus ascend? Up in human flesh. Where did he ascend to? Into glory, into the throne room of God. Why? He came to fetch and to give the Holy Spirit, that engagement ring, a pledge of marriage to us, his church, that will give unrestricted access to all believers to himself how will he return he will return to the mount of olives on a cloud of heaven as he went and what does he continue to do he continues and has atones and intercedes for us as our high priest because he knows and represents all of humanity's sin and deprivation and intercedes for us in front of that throne and on that throne so, last question. What should we be doing? So, let's look at the last few verses of Luke. The first verses that were written to us, uh, read to us by Chris. What are they doing? Verse 62, 52. They're worshipping him for all this. They're worshipping Jesus Christ and God for who he is, and what he has done. We should be a worshipping people, knowing and remembering and seeing what the ascension has brought. Filled with great joy in verse 52 as well. Overflowing with joy because of this. It's wonderful to know that we haven't got to rely on ourselves to save ourselves, to be before God. Our high priest has done it all. And we're to eagerly await his coming eagerly await his coming again with great anticipation. We wait for that high priest, our high priest, to step out of heaven once again when he comes again and finally declare God's dwelling place will be with his people. So his birth, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, so important, but also of the three and a half years he spent in his ministry. Because he didn't leave his disciples thinking of anything. They just ascend and ascend. He didn't leave them needy. 
He taught them everything. He discipled them through his three and a half years of ministry. As we've just taken up our views and our visions for how our church is going to work in three ways. This, Jesus did the same thing. He discipled them and showed them how to serve each other. In John, he washed his disciples' feet and said, do likewise, serve one another, be a, a loving community. He discipled his disciples just by what he did in practical ways. But he also, after his resurrection, came and showed them exactly who he was and what he had done through his word, through going through those scriptures. He left them with no, with no questions at all, really. They, that's why they left in joy. He completely showed them who he was through his scriptures. And he commands us to be missional. That great commission at the end. Go and make disciples of all nations. So we are to be missional, discipled, and self-sacrificial serving people of God. So as we finish, let's focus on the very last view Jesus' disciples had of Jesus Christ and as we can have by reading these passages. Let's focus on Jesus ascending into glory with his hands raised in blessing over us all, with his face shining towards us, not turned away. God's face is now shining and for us and towards us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, how wonderful your salvation redeeming plan is. How secure it is. How secure we are knowing that we can't rely on anything we do. There's nothing we can do that, bring, that can bring you closer to us. It is all what you've done for us. The burden is off us. We just thank you so much for the work of your Son here. We thank you for the promise of that Holy Spirit sent now to us all, that engagement ring promising that final wedding for us with your wonderful son. And we just thank you and remember him now, seated at your right hand in glory. Thank you so much, Lord. Amen.